I am watching a play with some friends. The set is a cavernous hall, at the centre of which sits a large open box. The scene starts off funny. A woman sitting silent within the box is being accosted by two bewildered supermarket employees. They demand to know why she did what she did in aisle seven. Does she realise they can no longer sell those melons so lovingly imported from Guatemala? The banter goes back and forth, and I'm laughing at the absurdity of it, of what this woman must have done. Then I notice that she has stayed silent. Her silence becomes larger and larger, cutting under the babble and laughter. In my dark seat, I have also fallen silent. The woman turns from the supermarket employees and rung by rung pulls herself up a ladder at the back of the box. She breaches the ceiling. The light changes. She turns green. She does not mention the melons. She talks about fortifying herself against outside forces. She tells us she has cut off her eyelashes and wrapped her body in barbed wire. It hasn't helped. It hasn't stopped them wanting to come in. Her voice starts reasonable, conversant. It builds. She is almost shrieking. She stands with bare feet splayed on the top of the box, lit in that ghastly green light. She delivers her conclusion. The only way to be unattackable is to accept attack. The only way to be unconquerable is to have no borders. You cannot take because I give it. Because I choose it, I choose it constantly. In my seat, I am weeping. Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast, sponsored by Pantera Press. Good Reading is a monthly magazine dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. Welcome back to the Good Reading Podcast. I'm Emma Harvey. After a standoff with her friend saw Emily Clement stranded in Vietnam at just 19 years old, she found herself spiralling into recklessness. The Melbourne author's new memoir, The Lotus Eaters, reflects on this turbulent time in her life, the uncertainties of young adulthood, the relationship between identity and geography, and the patterns of blame and shame that women can form around body, sex and self. To tell us a bit more about how her debut book came to be, we have the wonderful Emily Clements on the phone with us now. Emily, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. Now, I read somewhere that your very first writing venture was when you were just six years old in orange derwent pencil. I wonder what kind of stories you were penning at age six. Um, yeah, that's right. Uh, actually, it started with a dream. So I had this like dream of a castle in the middle of the forest that was like all white, but it was encrusted with this rainbow of jewels. And it was so beautiful. And like I woke from the dream with such like a good, but also like urgent feeling that I had to write it down. But before I could write the castle, I knew how to write how to get there. And as I wrote how to get there, all these characters emerged along the way. And I found myself slowing down and getting to know these characters and I found that each of them had a problem that the protagonist needed to help solve. Um, So that was the story. Was that the sort of the beginnings of your writing career? Did you always want to be a writer since you were younger? Well I think before that I'd wanted to be a zookeeper but pretty much since then yeah I was like okay this is what I have to keep doing and I wrote stories like pretty much through my all of primary school, all of high school Uh, One of the kindest things that a teacher ever did for me was um, 
we had this like project where we had to like make a video or something. Um, and she saw that like, I was not doing well in the group kind of situation. She kind of took me aside and she was like, well, instead of doing this, would you just like to use this time to like sit in our empty classroom and write? And like, I was so excited by that prospect. And so like, while the rest of the class was doing this video project, I just got to sit by myself and like write this story. And so since then, obviously you've made a bit of a name for yourself as a writer and you have been a figure in the Australian writing world for a while now. But as I understand it, The Lotus Eaters is your very first published book. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. Um, And it's in some ways it's my first Well, it's the first time I've been in print, actually. Oh, wow. Yeah. So to have like my first, like the first time that I've seen my writing in a physical form be a book is, I think, a little bit non-traditional. I think often the pathway to publication involves like literary journals and that kind of thing. And I have been involved with literary journals in an editing capacity, but I've never um, actually published something in print before. And so how does it feel now to have it almost out in the world uh, for people to read? It's interesting. Like I expected to feel kind of this amazing, almost like orgasmic jubilation. But <laughs> instead, it, instead, like I don't want to be reductive, but it almost feels like postpartum because, you know, yeah. you've got this thing that was inside you for so long and now it's outside and other people can read it and it changes Like depending on, well, every book, you know, is different for every person who reads it. So now it's no longer what I, it's no longer my experience. It's like the reader's Mm. experience that they're bringing to it. And so it's just outside of my control. Yeah. And the final product's here and it's called The Lotus Eaters, which sort of leads me on to my next question because that's such a terrific and provocative title. What was the inspiration for that? Um, well, I always knew that I wanted there to be a Lotus reference in the title. I'd spent a lot of time mulling over the meaning. Um, the flower grows from the mud, so it represents regeneration and rebirth. Uh, you often see it within Buddhist and even Hindu art as a symbol of spiritual transcendence. And for a country like Vietnam that is country that has like weathered war after war, mm-hmm. it makes sense that the Lotus is the national flower and you see them everywhere in Hanoi not just in the lakes and waterways, but also trussed together and sold from the backs of bicycles. And you can buy like lotus seeds from supermarkets. And it's it's kind of something that's always there. And I wanted to pay tribute to that in the title. But overall, I took the lotus as representing this quite idealized vision of something beautiful emerging from something ugly. Mm-hmm. And from there, I wanted to pair it with a word that like twisted that vision. I wanted in some way to like invert it and destroy it if that's a little bit melodramatic but (laughs) like so from there like you know I was thinking of what could kind of be the inverse of the lotus and I thought of you know sex and body are such big themes in the book and from there I thought of consummation and from consummation I thought of consuming eating eaters it was like hitting a perfect resonance yeah absolutely and as you say the book explores themes of sex and body and a lot of the themes or a lot of what you're navigating in the story is your relationship to your appearance and your weight um, and your body. And you write, in fact, that in Western culture, the hatred of one's body starts as soon as speech. What do you mean by that? Uh, So I've been thinking a lot about how identity is constructed and maintained through language. 
I think it takes language to drive a person against their own body. Feminine gender identity in particular is often defined by the ways in which we police our bodies and the ways in which we are expected to find ourselves wanting. I I don't know if it's possible to hate your body without the language through which that hatred is expressed. There's that idea that I came across recently, which is you can't be what you can't see. And I would posit that you can't believe what you can't express. Can you think of yourself as ugly if the word ugly doesn't exist? Or if you've never heard someone call someone else fat, how can you come to call yourself fat? We know that like beauty standards shift over time. So how else is that shift tracked, established and perpetuated, but through how we communicate to each other? Yeah, that's so interesting. And what was also interesting was the juxtaposition that you offered um, when you talk about your trip to Vietnam and the different beauty standards when you went there you describe that there's almost like a public domain of the body I think is a direct quote what was your experience of those different beauty standards when you went over there so I think my description of Vietnamese beauty standards would be as limited as my description of Australian beauty standards like for example I could say that typical Australian beauty standards comprise of say white teeth flat belly tan skin Slim waist, but big chest, thigh gap, long hair, slender arm. But I'm already disagreeing with myself. In Vietnam, I was often complimented for my pale skin, my clear eyes and straight nose, for my round face and soft jaw. But I can't say that those are like a conclusive set of Vietnamese beauty standards. What struck me most was how upfront people were, I guess, in discussing each other's bodies. Mm-hmm. I just come out of high school where everyone is always talking about what other people look like, what they're wearing, the weight they've gained or lost, new bag, old shoes, like piercings, hickeys, hair dye, but it's <laughs> all subterranean. Like none of it is to anybody else's face. And so much of my inner monologue at that age swirled around my body and what other people thought of it. So for me personally, to have some of that talk taken out of my head was quite healthy. It mm. enabled me to look at what the word fat looked like from a distance observe my reaction to it and blunt its edge. Right. So it wasn't as though there weren't beauty standards or it was this sort of utopia that had no um, pressures around body um, and appearance. It was more so that that people were really open about it. Is that the case? People speak directly to you about the way that you look. Yeah, absolutely. Like people would come up to me and say like, you know, oh, you need to lose weight. But they would also say like, you know, you're so pretty, you're so beautiful. And so you would have these two things kind of happen at the same time. And also like watching other people have their bodies kind of like commented on meant that like if I saw like someone that I thought was really beautiful and really like healthy and I saw that person being called fat in the same way that I was being called fat, I was able to kind of say, well, actually like it's so subjective and it's not a... um you know, it's not an unassailable judgment. It's it's not a truth just because someone else says it. Yeah. And um, speaking of that sort of like vulnerability of being a young person and a young woman, especially, um, as is the case with many memoirs, writing so intimately about your own life means revisiting some of these raw and difficult times. Was that a challenging process? It was in some ways. And I definitely didn't set out uh, to write about my adolescence. But once I'd written it, I'd felt relief, like that it was kind of out and like in a place where I could kind of look back and understand it better. 
uh, for a long time, I just compressed and compressed. And it wasn't until I'd hold it out that I realized how much weight it had had. And there were a lot of times in the writing process where I just sort of ached for my 19 year old self where I wanted to reach through the pages and like just basically give it like a huge hug. <laughs> but like you can't do that. So writing in a like full and faithful way about that time is like feels like the same thing to me. Sure. And for those who haven't read the book yet, but should, <laughs> The Lotus Eaters alternates between the two, those two periods in your life, when you travelled to Vietnam as a young adult and then occasionally revisiting some moments from your adolescence. Um, and, you know, it's widely known that memory is sort of a fallible, elusive thing and traumatic memory in particular tends to fragment the past or disrupt timelines, smudge details... How did you go about disentangling and unearthing your memories in order to write with such clarity and such detail as you do? Part of it was uh, how I wrote it. So I actually started writing in present tense. Um, and in the same way with fiction, how like getting into like the voice of a character gives you like opens up all these facts about the character that you didn't know. Like writing in present tense enabled me to kind of access that mindset that I had at 19 um, and, you know, and yeah, like I found myself remembering things like, oh, wait, yeah, that happened and, and things that I didn't expect to remember. But then once I remembered them, they like had such clarity and such, uh, sharpness, um, that it was almost unimaginable to have forgotten them in the first place. Um, I mean, I had the advantage of, uh, you know, journaling, like I've always been a really avid journaler, particularly in high school. Um, I, you know, I kept, just like oh, I hoarded notebooks and just filled them up with a lot of crap, to be honest. But a lot of it was, you know, what was going on at the time, what, you know, my thoughts were. Uh, and that continued into Vietnam, but, you know, became less frequent because I was like uh, writing emails and like, you know, updating my Facebook instead of writing it down in a notebook. So I always had uh, messages as well to draw on for like dialogue. But generally speaking, I, I have always had quite a good memory. So, um, which is, you know, That's can feel handy. like a bit of a curse sometimes, I suppose. Mm. But, you know, in the context of being particularly a like nonfiction writer, it's, it, it, it helps out a lot. Now, when I hear travel memoir, I, and I'm sure other people, you know, think of the, the white woman going abroad to discover her true self in an exotic location. But your book, it rejects many of these archetypes and it instead represents your journey towards security and identity as difficult and ongoing. Were you conscious of these genre trappings while you were writing your book? Um, yes. <laughs> and actually, <laughs> the, the fear of repeating that kind of travel story in large part uh, shaped the writing process like why because I'm not a big reader of travel memoir uh, once I realized that's what I was in some way writing I you know sought out travel memoir to read and see how people like wrote about these kinds of experiences um, but what I found is that so often it sets a white person's angst center stage to like a quote-unquote like exotic backdrop mm -hmm. um, and this writing it both uh, benefits from and enforces a post-colonial perspective of the other, which is something that I wanted to like very much avoid and subvert as to the best of my ability as a white writer. Um, what I found was what these books often have in common is an emphasis on the situational, 
So the day-to-day encounters that most people in any unfamiliar country have to navigate, but that actually by themselves like aren't the basis of a story. My belief is that if you're going to be writing about another culture, you have to write about yourself first and be soul-flayingly honest in the way that you do it. (laughs) So part of that for me was looking at who I was at 19 and dissecting the decisions that I made. That was prickly and uncomfortable, as it should be. Um, So, And I think part of that also is never assuming what someone else is thinking and writing... I'd like language was an important part for me to include Vietnamese language within the book so that, you know, there's not this invisible current of translation going on. Like I've, you know, kind of included like dialogue that I remember, even though that in itself is subject to a lens of me remembering mm-hmm. translating into English in my mind and then translating back to Vietnamese on the page, but it's still closer than what it would be to have me just blanket it in English the whole way through. Yeah, definitely. And you make a point several times to be really self-aware about the fact that that you're a white woman in a Southeast Asian country. And in particular, you acknowledge the sort of cultural hegemony and the imperialist structures that allowed you to rock up there and find work and earn money fairly easily because you worked as an English sort of teacher or tutor over there Uh, Why do you think it was important to address these things? I think it's important to remember that my experiences are contextualized within like who I am in the world and that not to say like, I think it's reductive to say that like whatever I suffered, other people suffered worse. But I think, you know, it's important to remember that these things run in parallel and, you know, that, you know, you have to kind of keep in mind that, um, you know, that me achieving self-worth or whatever is like it, the achievement of that is like contextualized within myself and like doesn't actually, uh, it's not kind of, it doesn't fix problems in the world as sometimes books can kind of make you feel, I think like you can come out of a book and be like, oh, you know, this person achieved this, but um, I don't think you should come out feeling too comfortable about what that may what that means and like and have a sense that like my achievement can be in relation to other people um not not getting there at the same time sure and so what would you say to someone who was planning to go overseas and hopefully find themselves and solve all their problems I think in some senses I do believe that everyone should travel because otherwise you're just kind of stuck in this bubble of like this is my life and this is all there is. But at the same time, I think that there's this collective travel narrative, especially um, seen kind of perpetuated through social media. And it's all about discovery and beauty and like what a country is bringing to us, Um, but very rarely about what we are bringing to it. So I think it just, you have to be kind of conscious of who you are and like who is benefiting from your travel and how you can you know, choose, make ethical decisions so that like your presence isn't harmful. It was important to acknowledge that within the book, uh, you know, so I'm not just kind of seen as like this, you know, this white person in a, you know, the conical hat or whatever, who is like become a local. Like, I think that's a really harmful, um, harmful kind of stereotype. Yeah. And you mentioned before that um, one of the ways that you tried to 
uh, challenge that stereotype or subvert that stereotype was just by focusing primarily on yourself and what you were going through and trying to be, um, to use your word, self-flayingly honest. Why did you think that it was so important to write so honestly and unreservedly, even if it meant that at times you were portraying yourself in an unfavourable light? Um, Well, for me, it's a question of integrity. Like, I feel like once you start censoring one aspect of your personality, in some ways, it invalidates the whole thing. Like, mm-hmm. I feel like you can't have one part of the book be true and and still have other and have other parts of the book be unfaithful. Like, I think if one part of it is unfaithful, the whole thing is unfaithful. Yeah. So you don't try to romanticize anything, uh, including the relationships that you have in Vietnam while you're over there. And that's a really key part of the book, the the toxic relationships that you entered into. This is something that I'm sure many readers will relate to. Why do we why is it that we so often turn to sex and relationships in times of crisis and uncertainty, especially when we're young? I think it's about intimacy and about, you know, it's a shortcut in some ways to finding someone who's going to have your back. Um, I think you know, particularly as women, we're kind of socialized to believe that, you know, a partner is going to protect us and that without them, we are vulnerable. And Mm -hmm. so I think that's kind of amped up in a situation where we don't know anyone. And when we're in an unfamiliar place, it feels like the answer to feeling lonely and feeling um, like on edge in some ways, most of the time. Often, you know, with sex as well, like that comes hand in hand, you know, sex in some ways is like a shortcut to a relationship because you feel like, okay, well, this is like the best of everything and, and like, you know, three hours flat, but um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, yeah, I I think that's it. And um, in the book, it's sort of, that forms a really key part of your journey. And by the end of the book, there isn't a relationship really, and it's sort of just become all about your relationship with yourself. Um, Would that be your advice to anyone who's going through tricky times in their lives as well, that it's, that the answer is maybe not in the bloke that you meet at the, at the hotel? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Absolutely. Uh, I want that on a Um, (laughs) t-shirt. But at the same time, um, yeah, I, it was really important for me to not end the book, um, you know, with that kind of that perfect partner who is the solution uh, to, you know, everything that was wrong. Um, even though, yeah, like that was something that I felt for such a long time that like everything would be all right so long as I had someone who loved me. Um, but unfortunately, what I feel well, I guess not unfortunately, actually, but just the truth of it uh, Mm. is that, you know, I mean, the only phrase that's coming to my mind right now is like RuPaul, you know, if you can't love yourself, how the (laughs) hell are you going to love anyone else? But it's absolutely true um, because like if you have a vision of yourself as a particular kind of person, you're only going to, um, you know, accept that love that you think that you deserve and it's always going to be less than you actually deserve and it's never going to make you happy because some part of you is going to know that this person isn't good enough but then that will be like it it'll be a cycle and well I mean this was my experience was it like you go with someone who you knew wasn't good enough but then you were like but I'm with this 
person like how am I with this person still and you're like oh it's because I'm not good enough and mm-hmm. so it would be this cycle kind of thing whereas I think actually once you have the confidence to be like you know I'm a great person like I'm a good person I deserve like I deserve someone who loves me for who I am um then and only once you're happy in yourself and you know you can take care of yourself then I think the partner can come in I think the partner has to be like the end step they have to be like the old you know they have to be like the bonus rounds like they can't be the (laughs) end in the end and yeah that's what I found in my life is that like once I had my shit sorted out I met a really great person and like that was just yeah that was just it for me there we go that's the sequel (laughs) (laughs) yeah um well you do you deal with those romantic and sexual relationships but another key theme in the book uh is friendship why did you feel that you also wanted to bring that into the story I guess because I feel for women in particular like there's this thing you know well often the friendships that we have between women can be just as intimate if not more intimate uh, than those that we have with the men in our lives and I wanted to look at you know and again in terms of like you know inverting stereotypes there's this like stereotype I feel in literature of uh, of women who are like bosom buddies like sisters but it's never kind of like that actually that dark undercurrent that is actually more harmful than it is uh, healing um, and so I wanted to include that to kind of acknowledge that you know women have a role to play in in cutting ourselves down to size sure. and that and often you know what a woman says to you is going to be like held more closely um, than what a man might say. And you, yeah, like I think we often turn to other women to maintain our low self-esteem. Yeah. So, I mean, and your book is certainly not telling people to close themselves off to relationships. And clearly you, that's not something that you've done, but it's certainly um, uh, encouraging people to demand more for themselves and have higher standards for relationships, both romantic and otherwise yeah uh, absolutely I, yeah. like I, I still strongly believe that it is better to be like by yourself than with someone um you know who is bad for you unhealthy yeah and that ties in with this verse that keeps coming up throughout the book and the line is you cannot take it because I give it because I choose it I choose it constantly why did you choose to keep coming back to that phrase or verse um, so that verse comes from the play Revolt. She said Revolt Again by Alice Birch. Uh, mm-hmm. And so does the epi- epigraph. Um, I watched that play and I just absolutely broke down uh, because I'd had that same impulse to respond to a violation of your boundaries by demolishing those boundaries so they can never be violated again, as paradoxical as that is. Uh, for me, the verse is about consent and navigating trauma about clawing back control when you feel you've lost sovereignty over your own body. Mm -hmm. Uh, The verse to me says, if hurt is inevitable, then I will redefine what it means to be hurt. If no one is going to respect what I want, then what I want will change. So about agency, but also the cost of agency. And I've used it in the Lotus Eaters to reflect the initial empowerment of being boundaryless, but then also the eventual exhaustion of it. And the realization at the end that I needed to work to make my body a safe place again. Right. Yeah. That's such an excellent sentiment. 
Um, and you mentioned earlier that you, you made a concerted effort to learn Vietnamese while you were living there. So to end on, I guess, a sort of lighter note, what are some of your uh, favourite Vietnamese phrases and why? I love this question. Um, well, swear words are always fun. I still giggle at the phrase lạnh như lon ma, which means cold as a ghost vagina. Um, <laughs> Uh, the pronoun system uh, is so interesting to me. Uh, you know, the ang em chi ban. Like, there's so many different systems of elder, younger, male, female, formal, informal. Um, and to me, they're kind of evidence of how a culture lives through its language. Um, I remember hearing an argument taking place between two shopkeepers. One yelled at the other, Mei bao niu duoi zoi, which is, How old are you? But he used an impolite pronoun that turned the phrase into an insult, like a kind of who do you think you are? Um, I love the words zé chiu, which is comfortable, and khéo leo, which is skillful, just because they're fun to say. Uh, the phrase mát đen như hạt nhãn, which means eyes black as lychee seeds, struck me as so pretty I had to use it in the book. Uh, but it feels a little bit less poetic in English. Um, there's chá kozika, which has so much character to it because it's kind of symmetrical. It just means don't have anything at all. Uh, I love chemzo, uh, which mean, which is kind of like chit-chat in English, um, and it literally means slice air. So talking, but all your words are doing are cutting a breeze. Oh, wow. And I also, yeah, yeah, and I also love the greeting questions. Uh, have you eaten rice yet? Where are you going? Uh, because they turn even the briefest encounter into a conversation. Wow, that's so impressive. Thank you for that. <laughs> well, now that you've, I guess, bitten the bullet with your first published book, I guess it's begun and so now there's no turning back. Do you have plans for what's coming next? <laughs> um, well, I guess it'll be uh making yeah for me it'll be biting the bullet biting the bullet will be writing short form stuff and yeah like actually writing essays and pitching to people which is not something that I've been very comfortable doing like I've up to this point been more so kind of writing like it's the book in some ways has just been like a receptacle for like everything that I've been like learning and remembering and going through mm -hmm. has kind of gone in some way into the book and now that I don't have that you know, I'm already feeling a little bit lost. And when I feel lost, I know that I have to start writing again. Um, so that will be another book. Uh, I'm really hoping to, um, you know, I have a few things on the back burner. Uh, I'd really love to write um, like a historical fiction. Uh, mm. But, <laughs> but we'll, you know, that remains to be seen. Again, like, you know, I, I ended up writing a travel memoir and I'd never read a travel memoir. <laughs> I've never really read historical fiction, but, you know, it, you have to start somewhere, I guess. Well, there you go. Um, thank you so much for talking with me, Emily. This has been a super fascinating conversation. It's a fantastic book that I just tore through. So the book is out February 1st and you can purchase it at Goodreading's online store, goodreadingmagazine.com.au or at any good bookshop. Emily, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me and for your amazing questions. It was very interesting to think through them. Mm -hmm.